This podcast is brought to you by Langley & Benack, a full-service South and Central Texas law firm that delivers the highest quality legal advice coupled with exceptional client service. From our main office in San Antonio, we provide the resources of a national firm while maintaining close ties to the communities in which we practice. To learn more, please visit us at langleybenack.com. That's langleybenack.com or call us at 210-736-6600. Today's episode is part two of a four-part series on bankruptcy law. This series is hosted by Clinton Butler. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in the Langley and Vanak podcast are for information purposes only and should not be considered legal or professional advice for any particular situation. The presentation of this informational content does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you would like to meet with one of our attorneys, please contact us through our website at www.langleybenack.com or call us at 210-736-6600. Hello, this is Clinton Butler, and this is the four-part series on bankruptcy law in Texas. As I said last time, I've enjoyed hosting these episodes and learning about the different areas of bankruptcy law, most of which I know little to nothing about. I've been really grateful to my partners and associates of this firm who've been able to assist me and my clients and others with their legal needs that are outside my area of expertise, one of which has been the bankruptcy area. And one person that I've leaned on very heavily uh, to try to help me and my clients uh, either through bankruptcies that they're going through or through bankruptcies uh, that are have been filed by people that owe them money or that we're in the process of litigation for has been my partner Alan DeBard. Alan, good afternoon and uh, give us a little bit about your history and how you came to work here at Langley Manat. Well, thanks, Clint. It's good to be here, and it, it has been fun working with you on the past. I think we've done some some good things for our clients um, in some in some pretty sticky or bad situations. <laughs> uh, but yeah, my name is Alan DeBard. Um, I am a shareholder here with Langley and Benack. I graduated from uh, Washington and Lee University, where I did uh, accounting and business administration in 2005. Um, I went straight to law school from uh, college and graduated in 2008 from St. Mary's and was licensed that same year. Um, I clerked for a year after graduating with uh, Judge Ronald B. King, who was the United States uh, Chief U.S. Bankruptcy Court here in San Antonio. Um, And after that, I took a little bit of time off looking for a job um, and spent some time in Colorado. And then um, fortunately, Langley and Banat called and um, asked what I was doing. And I had to put my fly rod down and and move back, unfortunately. And I've no more here. biking through the mountains for you. No, no more biking, and it was the, the ski season was just about to start, and I missed out. But um, <laughs> I've been here pretty much ever since with the two-year uh, hiatus, uh, so it was it was the right decision. So in our last episode, I talked to Dickie Davis about you know personal bankruptcies and you know what a what an individual goes through when uh, when experiencing bankruptcy. In this episode, I want to shift and focus more on business bankruptcies and you know what a business encounters and what a business goes through and particularly there's a subchapter that I know very little about but which I've heard 
called subchapter fives, uh, which are being used more frequently, in my understanding. And I'd like for you to kind of walk us through that. So before we, before we dive into business bankruptcies, I've, I'm interested in learning how the bankruptcy department people, how, how did you get into bankruptcy law? It's a, it's a very particular area of law, and I'm always interested to figure out how people kind of find their way into particular niches. Um, how did you personally get into the bankruptcy practice? Uh, sure, and this is one of my um, more favorite stories about the law to tell. Um, when I was in my second year of law school, I was in a, a class, I, I think it was business organizations or something like that, and the, the professor of the class had arranged for Judge Ronald King, who was the, the bankruptcy judge here in San Antonio, one of the bankruptcy judges here, uh, to come and talk to our class about bankruptcy. Um, and I remember, you know, up until that day, I had talked to a lot of lawyers, um, and my general impression was that they all kind of talked down to me, or they, they talked a lot about themselves. They never stopped talking. And, um, you know, I, I liked the idea of being a lawyer, but I hadn't been impressed with a lot of the lawyers I'd met up until then. And Judge King came, and he, and he talked to the class, and I noticed immediately that he, he wasn't egotistical. He was very, um, very mild-mannered, very humble, but he had a great sense of humor. And I didn't know anything about bankruptcy at the time, but I, I, after it was over, I went up and talked to him. I said, you know, I'd like to learn more about bankruptcy. And I ended up um, clerking for him. And so it was really that introduction that just happened by chance to, to Judge King and seeing really the kind of person that he was uh, that, that led me to be interested in working for him and learning bankruptcy. Funny story about Judge King. I, I met Judge King when I was 17 years old and it had nothing to do with the practice of law. My dad belonged to a gym called the Concord. And when I'd come home, actually, I'm sorry, I met him when I was like 20. When I'd home, come home from college on breaks and stuff, I'd go up there during lunch and play basketball. And there was always this little guy who would, you know, I'm a tall guy, I'd be in the post. There's this little guy who would come down there and just, you know, elbow me and ram me. And finally one day I had to get kind of physical with him in the paint. And my dad happened to be there as well, and he pulled me over and he goes, you know you just elbowed one of the most powerful judges in the state of Texas. <laughs> and it turned out it was Judge King. And, uh, yeah, he actually was a, he is a great guy, uh, very personable, um, and a really smart, smart judge as well. And so uh, that was how I got to meet Judge King. Uh, later came to know him in his more formal role. But um, I always like to tell that story about, you know, I, I met the, the chief bankruptcy judge, you know, in the in the paint, <laughs> and so, you know, let's talk about you know businesses getting into bankruptcy. You know, I think when I talked to Dickie, you know, one of the things we talked about was the stigma that comes along with bankruptcy. That you know, oftentimes individuals, particularly, have a hard um, ethical or moral hurdle to clear because there is a stigma that comes along with, you know, I am bankrupt, you know. Uh, do you find that to be the case with businesses uh, that, you know, in your opinion, should go through the bankruptcy process, but just don't want to take that step because of the, the perceived damage to their reputation or their standing or their ability to conduct business in the future? Sure, that stigma uh, definitely applies in corporate bankruptcies. Um, and, and 
you know, when you say corporate bankruptcies, you're talking about there's a lot of different types of business organizations. There's the mom and pop, the small stores. There's the mid-sized markets that may have a CEO and a CFO, and then you have publicly traded companies. So when you have a mom and pop uh, type store come to you and say, I think we need to file bankruptcy, the stigma and is, is usually a little bit worse for them because they see it as I've failed, I've not run my business correctly. It's and, more of a comment on them personally. Correct, that right. they weren't able to run the business. But when you see the larger companies, um, you, you truly see that, that they typically look at reorganization and bankruptcy as a financial tool. Mm -hmm. And I tell my clients, regardless of the size of their company, uh, that bankruptcy, especially reorganization, is a financial tool. It's a way for you to rehabilitate your balance sheet, restructure your debts so that you can keep your employees and continue to provide whatever goods and services it is you provide to uh, the economy. And do you, I mean, I think you described it perfectly that the bigger the business, the more detached, I'd say, the, the owners are from the actual day-to-day -day business of the, of the business. The, the less those bigger companies think of it as kind of a moral failing while, you know, your mom and pops who are running their laundry mart, you know, they, they feel that as a personal, personal thing against them. Is that? Absolutely. And, and a lot of times the, you sort of have a complicated situation where the company has the debts, but also the owners are personally liable for those debts. So you sign guarantees they, and they sign like guarantees. That. So they've got sort of two interests competing. One is, is my business going to be okay? And then secondly, well, what about me? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so that makes things a little bit more complicated in the process. But, um, you know, the, the overall idea. And, and in those mom and pop issues where you've got like personal guarantees and stuff, do you, do you oftentimes see that you're going to have both a business and personal bankruptcy that's going to happen in that instance? Yeah. So I typically tend to be very careful at the onset. I want to when I'm meeting a client, I want to I want to see if that's an issue. Are there personal guarantees? And if there are, I have to let them know that I'm only representing the company, and so my advice is going to be tailored towards what is in the best interest of the company. Which and the company also has a duty to creditors to maximize value and recovery for them. Mm -hmm. So I typically tell um, a, a client who is um, who also has a personal guarantee obligation that they probably need to have their own lawyer. Uh, represent their personal interest in the bankruptcy. And so a lot of times I'll have, I'll represent the company and somebody else will represent the individual and we'll sort of work in tandem. But I, I typically can't represent their personal interest. Because there may be competing interests there. Right. Uh, absolutely. And so you, you could find yourself in a conflict where what's best for the business might not be best for, you know, John and Jane individually. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, we talked about this with Dickie in the last episode, the different chapters <clears throat> of bankruptcy. And we talked about that from the, the consumer or the individual perspective. From a business perspective, walk through the different types of chapters of bankruptcy um, that a business can encounter. Sure. I'm really just going to focus on the chapter 7 and the 11. There are other chapters that a business could qualify for, but they're, they're pretty, pretty rare. Mm -hmm. um, but a chapter seven is a liquidation bankru bankruptcy. We, I call that ripping the Band-Aid off. Okay. And as a corporation or an LLC or any type of other business entity, if you file a chapter seven, 
you're effectively winding down the business. There's, there's laws under Texas that allow a company to formally wind down, and I think that's under the Texas Business and Commerce Code, or you can file bankruptcy, Chapter 7. And essentially, when you file Chapter 7, you're handing the keys to your business over to a trustee who's appointed to sell whatever assets there are. So Chapter 7 is basically that there's no saving this thing. The Titanic is going down. Uh, let's get off the life rafts. Let's you know get all the jewelry that we can off of it. But otherwise, this thing is done. Let's sell all the assets. Let's uh, let's satisfy the creditors to the extent that we can. And then after a Chapter 7, this thing is for all intents and purposes dead, right? That's right. Um, to the extent that a Chapter 7 company or a company that's in Chapter 7 has assets, that trustee will gather them up and sell them, often through an auction or, um, you know, whatever, depending on what type of asset there is, um, that'll dictate what kind of market is out there. And that trustee will sell those assets and then provide a distribution to creditors. If there's no assets, then there's no assets and the company essentially dissolves. And, you know, oftentimes the, the business owners will go start a new company or go get a new job or you kind of, you just move on. Gotcha. Okay. And so that's a chapter seven. Chapter 11 is a little more complicated, correct? Yes, that's correct. And so tell us what a chapter 11, because uh, that's not, when we think bankruptcy, I think what we think in our heads is chapter seven, that, right. you know, business dies, sell everything off, get rid of it and there's just no more, it's, it's bankrupt, it's over, it's done. Uh, but chapter seven, or chapter 11, excuse me, um, is a type of bankruptcy, but in the, at, at the other side of it, the business still exists in some form or fashion, correct? That's generally correct. Okay, so talk, talk us through what a chapter seven is and you know, what that looks like. Sure, and so the, the chapter 11 is really what Excuse I- Excuse me, chapter 11. No problem, I know what you were talking about. Um, so the chapter 11, I go back to this term, a financial tool. It's a financial tool in the business's toolbox. Mm -hmm. um, and what you're trying to do is reorganize your debts and come up with a new structure to pay your creditors back. So you're not, you're not liquidating, you're not, you're not getting rid of debt, you're finding a way that will pay creditors back based on your income from operations. So you can only pay people back however much money your company brings in. So the idea is to figure out what those numbers are and then propose a way to pay folks back. Now, it gets complicated um, for a number of reasons, and there's a number of um, different ways that Chapter 11 reorganization is achieved. Um, you know, some bigger Chapter 11s come in with what's called a prepackaged plan, meaning before the company even thinks about filing Chapter 11, they've already hired counsel and they've reached out to all their major creditor constituents. So thinking uh, usually like large banks, hedge funds, other types of lenders that own debt, um, hold debt that's owed or that needs to be repaid by the company. And so they will, they will engage in months of negotiations to figure out a restructuring deal that's already in place before they file bankruptcy. Um, that's become pretty popular these days because it, um, you avoid time in bankruptcy, which is expensive for a number of reasons, not only just through attorney's fees, but there are fees you pay as being a entity in bankruptcy. Um, so that's a popular method, but that's typically reserved for the larger corporations, publicly traded, 
um, those types of uh, of, uh, of companies. Um, you can have what's, what practitioners call a free-fall bankruptcy, which is you filed bankruptcy and you don't have anything worked out, but you're going to come up with a plan um, after the day you file bankruptcy and obviously before you file the plan that you're going to propose to prepay creditors. But the idea is you, you filed for a reason, maybe to stop a foreclosure on assets or um, you couldn't service your debt any longer, um, but you don't really have a pre-negotiated deal, but you are going to find a way to propose payments to creditors. Um, and then you have kind of the, the small business uh, chapter 11, and that's reserved for um, companies that uh, meet certain debt thresholds, and there's a number of, of rules that apply just to those to sort of make the process easier and less expensive. And then kind of the last one is what we call a single asset real estate case, where if the company just owns one piece of real estate, um, there's a specific provision in Chapter 11 that deals with those. So those are kind of your main types of Chapter 11 cases. They're all a little bit different. They all have a little bit of twists and bells and whistles to them. Uh, but essentially each of these, the idea is to reorganize the company so that at the end of the plan, um, at the end of the process, the company con con continues as a going concern, retains its employees and its operations. So how do you get debts settled? You know, let, you know, a company, you know, let's, let's not do the small business or the single asset just yet. Let's, let's talk more about just kind of your standard mid to large company. Uh, it's got debts that exceeds its assets. Um, how do you reorganize that type of company so that it allows to be able, it, it's enabled to continue business into the future? You know, generally, walk us through what a Chapter 11 process looks like. Sure. Um, you know, the, the answer is, is through hard-nosed <laughs> <laughs> negotiations that, that, that honestly take months sometimes, sometimes weeks, sometimes an hour. But if you look at the typical debt structure of a medium-sized company, they're typically going to have a large bank that loaned money in order for the company to, to operate. Right. And the large bank will have a lien on, if the company owns real estate, it'll, it'll have a lien on the real estate. If, it's, if, it, has, um, if it leases a space, then the, the, the bank will usually have a, a lien on receivables. So, um, so typically, most negotiations start with your term lender. You know, if the if the lender's not happy, the, it's 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 more easy for the for the bank to end the bankruptcy uh, than it is for most other creditors. So I typically try to be pretty friendly with the bank to the extent that the um, relationship is still positive. Um, and even if it's not, you know, bankruptcy, you get a new set of lawyers in, you get bank bankruptcy practitioners um, involved who are usually inclined to make a deal if there's one to be made. And if you can negotiate, you know, what your monthly payments are and then perhaps stretch out the, the um, maturity date of the loan to allow you to make smaller payments over a larger period of time, lower the interest rate, that kind of frees up cash for you to be able to negotiate and pay other creditors. As a bankruptcy practitioner, you know, I'll tell you from my perspective as an oil and gas litigator and then just kind of, you know, commercial litigation. Um, particularly in the oil and gas industry or in the oil and gas field, the type of lawyer I hate to see on the other side is one that doesn't know oil and gas law. You know, 
They could be, you know, real aggressive. They could be not aggressive at all. You know, almost any other attribute does not matter. If they know oil and gas law, then at least we're speaking the same language. We understand the, the contours of the playing field. We understand the limitations everybody's got. You know, when you're doing these negotiations, when you've got a lawyer on the other side, what is the type of lawyer that on the other side that's just a nightmare for you? <laughs> it's, it's usually somebody who um, is a longtime lawyer, just a general lawyer for this creditor or whomever, and they don't know bankruptcy. Right. And they're just in there because the, the client trusts them and doesn't want to hire anybody else. I've known Jim else. for 30 years. You know, and, that, there you go. and he's going to be a yeah. hard nose. And, um, you know, the other thing is, um, you know, people who don't want to try to make a deal. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I think that, you know, unfortunately some people um, will, you know, promise their clients things that aren't reasonable. Um, and I don't know if their intentions are, are whether to prolong the case so that they can continue to represent the, this client or not. But you, you get people who, um, who what they're asking for or what they're requesting is, is not even in line with what the rules allow for. Right. Like, um, it, it's not even, substantively, we can't meet that. But even procedurally, you know, yeah. you're, you just, you're, you're out of bounds. It, yeah, it's almost like they're starting off in bad faith from the get-go. And right. that just... Those people, um, you know, those types of, of lawyers, you just have to either litigate with them or, um, you know. Those are the type of people you know I'm going to end up in a fight with this person. That's you know, right. That, that This is somebody that I'm going to be in front of a judge with. Yeah, and, and in bankruptcy, if you can make deals with seven out of the eight people you need to make deals with, then usually the judge is going to, you know, catch on that, you know, something's not right here. Right. And so um, if you come in with you know, no deals with eight out of the eight creditors, and you're, you know, you might <laughs> then be- Then maybe you're the problem. <laughs> maybe you're the problem. That's right. Yeah. Uh, you know, if, uh, I always tell clients that, you know, if everybody in the world's an a-hole, then maybe it's you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's that, that's kind of the deal. And so, you know, what, uh, what factors does a business need to be looking out for? You know, what issues, what are the pitfalls? What are the obstacles? that a business really needs to be looking out for when it goes into Chapter 11? Sure. Um, you know, uh, the continuity, continuity of business is paramount for any bankruptcy. Um, if your business just isn't going to survive because it's either outlived its, its business model curve or it's just its customer base has gone, then you're not going to make it whether you're in Chapter 11 or not. Yeah. So you, it's important to keep your employees um, paid. It's important to keep your suppliers paid going forward. There's a rule in bankruptcy that you can't pay anybody that's owed debt after the bank. Before, I'm sorry, before the bankruptcy, but but your suppliers, as they supply goods and services to you after the bankruptcy, you got to keep them paid. Um, yeah, I mean. Bankruptcy doesn't apply to debt that's incurred after the bankruptcy is filed, correct? That, that's correct. And right. if, it's, if you don't pay that and you don't keep current on those debts, then you're going to be kicked out pretty quickly. And when you say kicked out, are you meaning that you're going to be moved from Chapter 7 to cha excuse me, Chapter 11 to Chapter 7? Sure. Uh, so so that either, either that, a conversion to a Chapter 7, or the case could just be dismissed, which would put you back right where you were before you filed bankruptcy. And all of the bankruptcy protections that you had when you filed that bankruptcy are now gone. Correct. Right. So, you know, 
other than business continuity, making sure that you know you continue to operate. Well, first, let me back up. How does a business continue to operate when it's going through company reorganization? Um, you know, one of the benefits that a company gets is the automatic stay, mm-hmm. um, and that that does a number of things. One, it it stops it stops the bleed financially in the sense that you no longer the company no longer has to pay any onerous debt obligations that were um, in existence prior to the bankruptcy. Um, a lot of times company get, get, companies get put into bankruptcy because of litigation. If you're involved in really nasty, expensive litigation, if you file bankruptcy, you get a temporary halt on that litigation. So you can, you know, for some period of time, stop the bleeding by having to pay your lawyers. You can stop having to focus your efforts on the litigation, uh, which takes away from your ability to run your company. Um, so, so that really assists companies in sort of getting back on track. Um, you know, there's a number of you know, factors that we can't control, like the economy or COVID, and obviously those have effects that are not anticipated, that you just have to every, that affect every company, and you just kind of have to roll with the punches and, um, and continue to, to operate your business. And really, you know, employee, employees are crucial. Yeah, you know, when you tell your employees that your the company's filing bankruptcy, their initial thought is, "Oh no, I need to go find a new job." Right. And so communication, um, whether that's through the upper management or through your bankruptcy lawyer, is is really important to let people know that you intend to be able to be able to keep paying them and that they'll have a job and that this is just temporary, that it's not going to affect them and their families, that this is something that we can hopefully get through. Um, so that's really a key part, because uh, if everybody jumps ship, then you can't keep a business operating keep a business. Without, without people. That's right. Right. So how expensive of a process is Chapter 11? It, it sounds like it's, you know, a months, if not years long process involving, you know, multiple attorneys with, you know, lots of time being put on the bill. And so, you know, kind of walk a walk the audience through what sort of expenses they could expect to incur both from a legal fee and then also potential expert fees as well. Sure. Um, you know, bankruptcy is, um, it, it is on the expensive, it's on the expensive side. Um, you have to hire lawyers who are specially trained in, in bankruptcy, not somebody who is a family law lawyer wouldn't be able to handle a chapter 11 case. So you are hiring attorneys who are, you know, who are, have a very niche um, expertise. And um, there's a lot of hours that go into the, the, both the, the planning process and the actual bankruptcy filing and then afterward. If you've got nine different banks and a bunch of other creditors, you have to deal with everybody's interests at the same time. It's not like you can just put somebody on hold. So it's a constant negotiation trying to keep 10 different creditor constituents happy. And so just the man hours that go into that are, are, are obviously, you can imagine, um, each of those creditor, creditor constituents has their own counsel and they're calling and emailing saying, what about my guy? What about my guy? What are you gonna do for us? And so as, as, as the debtor counsel, it, you have to have two or three lawyers you know, working pretty much you know, all day depending on the situation to, um, to, to just manage the, manage the, uh, the bankruptcy and, and get it going. So if you're that small mom and pop, you know, owns the small grocery store, maybe the restaurant or the laundromat that, 
you know, due to COVID or something, has gone through some hard times. How can you afford to go through a Chapter 11 bankruptcy that allows you to still keep this business that's, you know, been a dream of yours forever, um, while also going through the cost that that you incur in the Chapter 11? Sure, it's it's really difficult because the last thing they have is twenty or thirty thousand dollars to give to a bankruptcy lawyer. Right. That twenty or thirty thousand dollars might be better served paying their employees. Um, you know, luckily in two thousand and nineteen, um, Congress passed the Small Business Reorganization Act of twenty nineteen. And this was um, the bankruptcy code is a book of rules that that uh, that tell you how to run bank how the bankruptcy laws work. And there's not very there's not many amendments very often. So when there is one, it's a big deal. And this was a really big deal in 2019 when the Small Business Act was enacted. What was the impetus for the the Congress to to do this? It was uh, I, my understanding is that it was to to make there was a small business um, provision in the bankruptcy code prior to this, but it didn't, it was not very effective. It didn't really uh, achieve the goal of helping smaller businesses uh, reorganize through a cheaper mechanism. And so the, the, the whole idea behind the Small Business Reorganization Act, and this is, and I'll read a quote from the uh, Department of the Justice uh, United States Trustee Program, which is the um, the body that oversees the Chapter 11 process, uh, the director of that program said that the Small Business Reorganization Act represents an innovative effort to expedite and reduce the cost of bankruptcy for small business debtors to reorganize their debts and save their businesses. So faster, cheaper. Um, if we can get smaller businesses through there, they'll have a better chance of survival because a lot of these small businesses might be able to limp through a traditional Chapter 11 but the expense uh, that they have to pay through attorney's fees and other fees that I can talk about in a minute, it really leaves them in not that great of a rehabilitated shape. Right. They basically have liquidated themselves through fees. In, 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 yes. Right. In, and so how does one qualify for getting under that Small Business Reorganization Act 2019? So when the, uh, when the legislation was enacted in 2019, it was for companies um, who had less than $2.7 million in debt. Um, the 2020 CARES Act, which was um, um, enacted um, as a response to, to COVID-19, increased that $2.7 million debt limit, or threshold limit, I'm sorry, to $7.5 million. So in 2020, the debt limit for a company to qualify as a subchapter five, and subchapter five is the the, um, the small business reorganization act um, uh, rule. Um, the CARES Act increased that limit to 7.5 million dollars, and then Congress has actually extended that um, debt limit through March 27 of 2020. So from from until until May, I'm sorry, March 27, 2020. Companies with less than $7.5 million can qualify as a small business subchapter 5 case. And so, you know, we just talked a second ago about how small businesses might be able to limp through a traditional chapter 11, mm -hmm. but the fees will essentially kill them. So one of the things that the Small, the small Business Act does is that it eliminates U.S. trustee fees. So the United States trustee is a program um, that's part of the Department of Justice that oversees uh, the Chapter 11 process. 
Um, they're active in every case. They um, have a number of guidelines that debtors are, are required to uh, follow in order to be a debtor and take advantage of the Chapter 11 process. One of the things that um, is really great about this Small Business Act is that you don't have the debtor doesn't have to pay U.S. trustee fees, and so in a chapter in a traditional Chapter 11, the debtor has to pay fees to the United States trustee based on a percentage of distributions. So you have to file reports showing how much money every month was distributed out of the company. And then at the end of the quarter, the United States trustee looks at those reports and says, you had this much in distributions, here's the percentage that you pay, send us a check for X. So for example, if you're a company and you have a million dollars of distributions every month, the quarterly fee to the United States trustee would be $24,000 a quarter. So if you're in bankruptcy for a year, that's $100,000 a year that you're paying out of your bottom line to the United States trustee as a, um, as a, as a cost to be in bankruptcy and to use the bankruptcy system. Mm -hmm. So the small business eliminates that completely. And are there any downsides to going through the Small Business Reorganization Act? Uh, there are some downsides. Um, I, I, I don't know that I, I left off one of the really great things about it that I think, that I think the audience needs to hear about because um, it is kind of innovative and it's, it's pretty interesting. The, the Subchapter 5 process, when the case is filed, a trustee who is a bankruptcy lawyer not associated with the U.S. Trustees Program is assigned to your case. And it is his or whole, he or she is, is charged with um, assisting the debtor in reaching a consensual plan of reorganization. So the whole idea behind the Small Business Act is to have a consensual plan because those, if they're not, if they're not contested, then there's less fighting, less fees, less time. And so you get this neutral in the trustee who's appointed to work with the debtor, work with all the parties, and try to negotiate a, a resolution so that everybody's happy. Mm -hmm. So you have like a built-in mediator who's on your side, and he's not necessarily on your side, but who's there to try to push the parties to um, consensus. Right. He's there to facilitate deals instead of, you know, like we've talked about, if you've got, you know, a hard charger there, he's trying to bring that person back into a more reasonable position. Absolutely. To diffuse, um, you know, bad blood between debtor and creditor, um, to help them see, you know, the the light at the end of the tunnel, if they can get to a deal. Um, and so it's a really, you know, it's a really great way um, to have one more person who's neutral um, that, that's not seeing this from, you know, the debtor standpoint or the creditor standpoint. Gotcha. And so what does this look like, you know, subchapter five, what's it look like from the creditor side of the, uh, of the position? Sure. Uh, there are specific provisions of the Chapter 11 code that don't apply um, in the Subchapter 5 context. Uh, but to a creditor, it, it's, generally, it's generally similar. Uh, creditors have the same, um, have some of the same tools in their toolbox to, uh, to deal with the debtor. Um, a creditor in a Subchapter 5 can still move for the appointment of a trustee. They can still move to remove the debtor, meaning if you think the debtor the debtor's management is, is not doing what it's supposed to do or has done something fraudulent, the creditors can move to have that manager removed. 
um, you can, creditors can still move for conversion to Chapter 7. Um, one of the things that goes away for the creditors is, for, is the ability to appoint a committee. And oftentimes in large cases you have an unsecured creditors committee, meaning there is a, a basically a group of three or more unsecured creditors who, um, are, 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 who form the committee and they hire their own counsel. And that, that counsel and the committee act on behalf of all the unsecured creditors. So you lose that, um, creditors lose that, um, but typically in these smaller cases, there's not as much debt, so that's not the end of the world. You know, creditors can still object to the plan, they can still vote not to accept the plan. So at the end of the day, there are some, creditors do have some of their tools removed, but they do have a lot of the, the same, um, uh, you know, um, tools available to fight the debtor as they do in a chapter 11, typical chapter. So if a company came to you and said, you know, look, we're, we're thinking of filing bankruptcy, what, what's the first piece of advice that you give them? And what is it that you say, you know, you need from them in order to be able to give, give them your best piece of advice? Well, I mean, the first thing I'd say is if you have debts of less than seven and a half million right now, we need to, we need to talk because this window for filing under subchapter five may be gone in March of 2020. So I'd immediately want to know is, do you qualify for this? And if so, you know, let's look at that option. Um, you, you know, say March of 20, you mean March of 2022? Yes. Okay. I'm sorry, March and of 2022. What is happening in March of 2022 that could potentially eliminate this subchapter five? That's potentially when the debt limit might be reduced from 7.5 million back to 2.7 million. I see. Okay. So you might, you've got this window of 7.5 at this time that you can go under subchapter S. That's right. And it may be, it may, that, that debt limit may be extended for another year. We just, we just don't know. It's set to expire in March of 2020. We won't know until probably March, whether it's going to be extended again. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and then what else would you, you know, let's say that, oh no, it's, it's more than 7.5. You know, what, what do you tell somebody in that position? Um, you know, the first thing you want to know is, well, what do you think the problem is? Why are you coming to see me? Is it, are you about to lose assets through foreclosure? Are you about to default? Um, has something happened to your business that fundamentally changes it? Uh, you know, healthcare industry, laws change, oil and gas, you know, booms and busts. Um, so you want to get a perspective from the um, client about what the problem really is. Mm -hmm. And then from there, you really almost want to jump into the financials. Um, you can spend a lot of money trying to rehabilitate a company that just isn't going to make it because they just don't have the cash flow. Right. And so, you know, it's important for the company to be very um, detailed, not only have detailed records, but to be realistic. You know, debtors are always optimists. They always think, well, you know, next month's going to be better. Next, next quarter is going to be this better. hill. And then, you know, it's all smooth sailing from that point. And, and I get that. And that's, that's great because, you know, you want to have somebody in your corner that wants to do everything they can to push through this. Um, but the sooner you can realistically assess the financial viability of your company, um, you know, so you got to be somewhat of a corporate psychologist here where you got to maybe, <laughs> you know, bring people to reality to say, look, you know, you've been you've been chasing this dragon for, you know, three years. You're on a slow, steady decline. This isn't going anywhere. You know, we need to we need to think realistically. Exactly. And it's it's 
it's a hard thing. It's a hard conversation to have because I have an accounting degree, but I'm not a CPA. Right. And I, I'm not creating their books. I don't know what their, I mean, I can look at their numbers and sort of make inferences and, and conclusions based on their finances. But really, they're the ones who've been living living the company and living the, uh, the, the income statements, the balance sheets. And so there may be a good explanation for why last year was really bad. So you want to you wanna definitely make them aware of this is what could happen, here's what your options are, and let them you know, explain why the finances or why the financial projections support or don't support each But one. at the same time, because like you said, they've been living this. This is who they are in many instances. It's oftentimes hard for people like that to have objective views mm-hmm. on where they're really at. And so do you oftentimes say, look, you know, I think we need to bring in a CPA or a forensic uh, auditor to really take a look at these books and to give us a cold, hard fact opinion on where you are financially and where you could be in the next one, two, three, four or five years? Absolutely. I think that's great from a, a preliminary um before you file, if you have enough time before you file to do that, it's well worth the money you spend. And oftentimes, you know, depending on the size of the case, once you get to the plan stage, and this is probably not in many of the subchapter five cases because there's, you know, the amount in, in, in question is smaller, but in the larger cases, you have to have somebody who's independent do your financial projections because you need that layer of expertise and modeling, financial modeling, to prove that you're going to be able to make the payments that you're proposing. So you're going to incur that expense anyway. Might as well do it on the front end. Exactly. Right. And, and you know, and a lot you get you get people in who have either kept their books internally, and you know they didn't do anything fraudulently or or, or you know intentionally, but they just they're just not kept very well. And, and right. a lot of times, just a simple fix of, but they don't want to pay. You know whatever it is, and it's a not it's it's often you know nominal in the grand scheme of things. The the amount they pay, the return they would get on that is the, just the penny wise, pound foolish. Exactly, you know, I, I, and you know that's something I've seen in my industry a lot of the people who come to me with a bad oil and gas lease, saying you know I'm getting screwed by the operator. You know what can I do? And they hand me this you know three page lease, and I say well not much. <laughs> and you know my initial thought is. You know, if you had paid me to do your lease, then, you know, we'd be in a much better spot now Mm -hmm. than, you know, we're sitting here with this lease that you thought you could negotiate yourself. You saved yourself, you know, several thousand dollars, but now, you know, you don't have cost-free royalties. You know, and that's, that oftentimes is advice I give to my client is, let me help you on the front end because it makes the back end so much easier. I mean, the more the more planning, the more time you give a bankruptcy lawyer, uh, the opportunity to to work with you before that foreclosure hits or before that debt payment is missed, the better. Because as expensive as it is for debtors to go into bankruptcy, it's just as expensive for creditors to have to hire a bankruptcy lawyer as well. And so, sure. you know, banks are usually inclined to make deals before you go into bankruptcy, right. which is a much better for everybody. It's far more cost efficient and it maintains a relationship. If you can call somebody before you're in the frying pan and say, Hey, I'm having these problems. You know, here's my, here's my financials. Banks always want to know, give me a, send me your, show me the spreadsheet, show me, show me your balance sheet, show me your income statement and what can you actually, you know, afford. And, and, you know, 
companies enter into forbearance agreements with lenders all the time. But you have to have, you can't be the night before or two weeks before, you have to have, you know, a, at least a month or so to, to actually be able to, um, to do something that's going to benefit everybody. And so I think the ending advice here would be that, look, you need to, you need, once you see the problem coming, start contacting someone like Alan so that you can start working toward the best solution possible. Because, you know, as a litigator, I always hate that, you know, last minute, you know, midnight phone call of, hey, you know, here's the situation I'm in. It's gone really wrong. And I'm always thinking to myself, you know, man, if you had called me a month ago, we could have been in such a better spot. Mm -hmm. I'm sure the same thing holds true for you. Absolutely. Um, I mean, you can't say it any better. I mean, I realize that people have a lot going on. I realize that, you know, when this is happening, it's not something you enjoy dealing with. Or, or that you really want to mentally or emotionally confront. Exactly. You know, I mean, you know, I, I think that is oftentimes the thing that has stopped my clients from calling me the month prior is that I just, I just really don't want to deal with this S. You know, I just, mm -hmm. I, I don't want to have to, to physically, emotionally, and mentally confront the situation I'm actually in. And then it's almost too late by the time that they do call me. Yeah. Well, not too late, but it's going to be much more expensive. It's going to require a lot more work from me. And, you know, usually by the time somebody's calling me, things have really gone off the rails. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely an unenviable position. But the thing is, is that if whatever, whether it's oil and gas or bankruptcy or anything else, if you call the lawyer in advance, you're not going to have to deal with it alone. You, yeah. you immediately have somebody who can provide advice on how to mitigate it. And so... Um, I mean, it's just, it's, it can really make your life and potentially save, potentially save your company and the hard earned equity that you built in that it can preserve jobs. Um, and so it really, it really is worth, you know, making that uncomfortable call. And the way I like to end these conversations is I'd like to get a, a war story or two. Is there, you know, without naming names or anything or breaching attorney client, is there a situation or circumstance that you can uh, convey to us in which, you know, you felt really proud about the fact that this company came to you, they were in a hard spot, and because of your efforts, you were able to help, you know, save this business and allow them to continue on when, when at the time they came to you that first time, they really didn't know if this was going to be able to be something that, that would continue, that they might just have to liquidate and, you know, call it a day on this business. Sure. Uh, as, as coincidence may have it, I, I just confirmed a plan for a subchapter five debtor last week. And um, luckily, the, the individual who ran, runs the company did call me a, a month before um, D-Day. There was an important deadline coming up that was going to result in a default that was going to create all sorts of problems. And so we had a month to plan and we had a month to get all of our ducks in a row. Um, and the thing that was so great about it is that it's a small company. Um, the company hires uh, the president and then his family members are the other three or four uh, employees. So that's, that was obviously very cool to be able to um, make sure that they all had jobs. But the nature of the business was one that, uh, it was a manufacturing business, but seven or eight different companies all contributed to this product. So um, one company would supply the, the fabric. Mm -hmm. one, one company would supply the, the plastic. 
One company would sew it. One company would package it. So they were all interrelated. You and had inter- an ecosystem there. Yeah, they're all completely in- interdependent on each other. Yep. And so if, if my client didn't make it, the ripple effect to these other companies was going to be pretty huge. Yeah. It's like taking an animal out of a food chain link. You know, just the whole ecosystem just collapses on itself. Exactly. And they right. were all, there were contracts to make certain things that everybody had geared up to make these and they had staffed accordingly and they had, you know, they bought um, product based on what these contracts required. And, and if the company didn't make it or got converted to chapter seven, there was a real possibility that the domino effect would be that these other companies had to file bankruptcy and, and jobs would be lost. So, um, you know, getting through that and, and reorganizing the, the debt and, and sort of taking care of some of the issues in that was um, something that was really neat. And it worked, it worked, it worked the exact way that subchapter five um, was envisioned. You know, you had a really quick, you filed bankruptcy, there was a quick exit. Uh, we did, we weren't able to get a consensual plan. Um, but it all, it turned out okay at the end, the plan was confirmed and we were able to reach deals with all of the creditors. There was only one class that didn't vote and that was enough. They didn't vote no, they just didn't vote. So we were able to negotiate deals with everybody to where they were happy and this company, um, you know, should survive going forward. Well, you know, they teach you on your first day of law school that if you're doing a podcast on bankruptcy and you can end it on a happy note, you do it. (laughs) And so, you know, with that, uh, Alan, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much for, for walking us through what bankruptcy looks like for the business side. Uh, this has been Clinton Butler, and I want to thank our audience for joining us today. Uh, on our next episode, we'll be discussing bankruptcies that get filed during the process of litigation. And I'm going to be joined by a fellow shareholder and board-certified business bankruptcy attorney, uh, Natalie Friend-Wilson who has extensive experience in advising our clients on the implications of bankruptcies that occurred during the course of outstanding litigation. So, Alan, I want to thank you uh, for joining us, and I want to thank everybody for listening today uh, to the Langley of Act podcast on bankruptcy law in Texas. Thank you, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Thank you for joining us today for the Langley and Benack podcast. Please subscribe to get the latest updates. If you would like to meet with one of our attorneys, please contact us through our website, www.langleybenack.com or call us at 210-736-6600.